Welcome to a hybrid episode of American Shoreline Podcast Network. Today we have two different podcasts being mashed up for your listening entertainment. Uh, this is Derek Brockbank. I'm the host of The Capitol Beach. And my name is Jenna Valente. I am your co-host today and I host the Sea Change Podcast. Uh, really excited to be coming to you today and excited to be having Jenna as my co-host. It's a, a first time we've done this, um, but we've got two guests and who bring to us both policy issues and advocacy issues or, or background in policy and advocacy. Of course, the Capitol Beach is your podcast that brings you uh, policy insights and, and wonky details from uh, our nation's capital. Um, but I'm glad to be uh, interviewing these guests with Jenna, who, who brings some advocacy perspective. Yeah, so my show focuses on um, some really interesting people that are living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And for those of you that are familiar with our shows, you may have also noticed some overlap in the content that we cover between the policy side of things and the advocacy side. So we too noticed those similarities and thought that it would be really fun to work together on a crossover show. So welcome to, and I was like sitting here trying to think of a good mashup name uh, for the two shows, the, the Capital C podcast, maybe, I don't, I don't know. But uh, either way, we are very excited to bring this episode to you all. Yeah, definitely. I, I almost introduced it as a very special episode from American Shoreline Podcast, but I was worried that sounded like one of those, you know, full house episodes where they dealt with serious topics. And I actually think this one is just going to be a lot of fun. Um, excited to talk to two, uh, two friends, colleagues, uh, coastal professionals that I've worked with for a long, long time uh, in Elizabeth Mabry and Sarah gonzalez Rothi. Uh, I've worked them, with them in multiple capacities, both in their capacity as uh, congressional staffers and in their capacity as advocates. Um, really smart, uh, smart, talented coastal professionals who've done really a really good job, I think, in both the advocacy side and the congressional side. And so we're interested to hear their perspective on on the differences in the two and, and how they've how they've made that uh, work. Um, so really excited to talk to them. But first, uh, we need to help pay the bills. And so uh, let's take a quick pause to thank our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. 
They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, really excited for this interview. Uh, as I said, these are these are good friends of mine, uh, folks that I've worked with at a professional level for a long time and, and certainly had a couple beers and, and chatted with. And um, so I'm excited to talk to them. Uh, I know them a bit better than Jenna, so I'm going to let Jenna do most of the question asking and I'll, I'll see if I can add some follow-ups here and there. So, um, But uh, Elizabeth, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So I would love to start off by actually getting to know you both a little bit better because like Derek mentioned, um, this is my first time meeting both of you. So it is an honor and a privilege and I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Um, but let's start with, will you bring us up to speed on some of your background? So giving an overview of the path you took to get to where you are today and for this one, let's start with Elizabeth. Hi there. Well, I am from Metairie, Louisiana, which is a suburb of New Orleans and close to the Louisiana coast and right on Lake Pontchartrain. And I actually think that's what fostered my passion for protecting the environment and coasts specifically. I grew up visiting the Audubon Zoo and the aquarium and the Jean Lafitte National Park. And I remember reading My Big Backyard and Ranger Rick magazines when I was a kid. And my parents also promoted activities like planting milkweed and helping monarchs on their migratory journey. And so just from a really young age, I was interested in coasts and the environment. And I went to college at Louisiana State University, where I actually started, believe it or not, as a pre-vet major. Uh, but then in my first semester, I decided that medicine wasn't for me, and my passion for helping animals was meant to be more of my community service and not my profession. And that's when I switched to public relations and political science. And then it's kind of history from there. Senator Landrieu hired me on her 2008 re-election campaign and then brought me to Washington uh, where I started as her executive assistant in 2009. And Sarah, how about you? So Elizabeth and I are kindred spirits. Um, it's true. It's going to be a bit, of a, <laughs> a bit of a similar story, just taking a couple different paths. Um, I'm from Gainesville, Florida, which is the home of the University of Florida. Um, go Gators. Sorry, Elizabeth. <laughs> Also an SEC football um, school, but a different one. And I grew up spending time in our freshwater rivers and springs. So I grew up in the Suwannee River watershed and the Santa Fe watershed. Um, and though we had a coast an hour and a half on either side of us, we really spent time in the freshwater. Um, and then I went to undergraduate at University of Florida, originally pre-vet also, um, Took my first semester of chemistry and said, no way, not for me. <laughs> and ultimately wound up being an anthropology major. But in that anthropology degree, focused a lot on natural history and the relationship between people and the environment. Ended up going to law school at the University of Miami. Immersed myself in the Everglades and the coasts down there in South Florida, which are wildly different than the North Florida um, environment. Fell in love with it also fell in love with a man who decided that he that his job would be in DC. So 
came here to be the first inaugural Everglades Foundation fellow in September of 2009 in the office of Senator Bill Nelson, who was a senator from Florida, very strong um, coastal advocate and very strong anti-drilling advocate. Took a spell at the National Wildlife Federation or while... Um, while Elizabeth actually was at Environmental Defense Fund, and we worked closely together there as we did on Capitol Hill. And then we both wound up coming back to Capitol Hill to work for committees. Um, and we still work on sister committees to this day. And so those sister committees are Elizabeth works on uh, environment and public works. And um, Sarah, you work for the Senate Commerce Committee, so both Senate committees. Um, if Maybe you could, uh, Elizabeth, maybe starting with you and then Sarah, tell us briefly about what your job is now and what um, and what the, what the committee does for those that might not know. Sure. So the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works has a very broad jurisdiction that ranges from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to the EPA to the Army Corps to transportation issues. And I work specifically on all issues in the jurisdiction of the committee that are within the Department of the Interior. And so those issues include all of our wildlife protection laws, or many of our wildlife protection laws at least, including the Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and of interest to those focused on coasts. I also handle the Coastal Barrier Resources Act, known as COBRA, and the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, known as NACA. And just to elaborate a little bit more on the work of a committee staffer, we serve the ranking member of the committee. We also serve the Democratic members of our committee and the Democratic caucus. And so that really gives us an opportunity to work on issues that are relevant to a wide range of space, I mean, a wide range of states and uh, communities. But ultimately, your boss on the EP is the ranking member of EPW, who is currently Senator Tom Carper. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, we serve at the pleasure of the ranking member. Yeah. So um, our committee is also broad jurisdiction, but not what you immediately think of when you think of the coasts and environmental uh, conservation policy work. So the full title of our committee is Commerce, Science and Transportation. And none of those things say oceans, and none of those things say environment, <laughs> as compared to Elizabeth's committee, the Environment and Public Works Committee, which it's very clear how they have jurisdiction over these issues. So for the Commerce Committee, we are in the subcommittee called Science, Oceans, Fisheries, and Weather. Um, and so my, my work is generally related to issues under the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And so a lot of the statutes that, um, that you think about that I work on include the Coastal Zone Management Act. Um, we do have jurisdiction also over the fisheries conservation and management statutes, although I don't work directly on them. And a lot of climate and coastal resilience, in addition to the science and monitoring that goes into environmental protection. And as Elizabeth noted, working for ranking, she works for ranking member Harper of Delaware. I work I have 12 bosses, but, but my number one boss is ranking member Maria Cantwell from Washington State. And then in addition, we have subcommittee um, ranking members. And for me, that's Senator Tammy Baldwin of, of Wisconsin. 
And I'll just jump back in and add an example of one issue where our committees overlap. So I had to correct myself when I said we handle all wildlife protection laws because Sarah's committee actually has primary jurisdiction over the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But that's an interesting statute because while NOAA manages many and most of species that are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, protection responsibilities for other species under that statute, like polar bears um, specifically. So that's just kind of an interesting, fun example of how our committees overlap. So such a good example of, of the coastal dynamics where, you know, you've got the ocean committee that sort of has responsibility over the ocean and a committee that has responsible over lands and uh, the coasts overlap. So there's a little bit of both. Yeah. And I, I, now I just, after hearing a, a little bit about both of your backgrounds, I think that it is a really incredible experience that you both have had working both in the nonprofit sector and in government and policymaking. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about what the transition, the transition is like um, moving between the two. Um, so either from nonprofit to government policymaking or vice versa. And uh, let's start with Sarah this time. Yeah, so um, the transitions have actually been really fun and really a significant learning experience for me. I used to tell people when I was an undergrad, I was a TA for several different classes, a teaching assistant. And I used to tell younger students who'd come to me asking for guidance, never say no to an opportunity that comes out of left field because no matter what it is, you can learn translatable skills. And that's true also with my transitions in and out of government work and into advocacy and back. So when I started in Senator Nelson's personal office, I learned a whole lot about constituent services, you know, and what are people writing to their senators about, what really keeps them up at night. Um, and I learned how to address a problem from a policymaker standpoint. Um, but I didn't learn how to create um, grassroots support for an initiative. And excuse me, my as a as a working mom at home during COVID, my toddler has now come over to request some assistance. So you may hear. Um, and then going into the advocacy world, I learned a lot about coalition building and the importance of communications and grassroots initiatives. Um, and was able to then use Mama. those skills Mama. when I came back Mama. to work for the committee. Mama. Yeah, maybe we should let Elizabeth uh, take over for a second. Yes, happy to. Uh, my experience is not dissimilar from Sarah's. I think that you know one thing about the Hill is that it's extremely fast-paced, especially when you work in a personal office. Staff are typically spread a mile wide and an inch deep. And I recall one thing in particular about my first Hill experience, and this is with respect to the BP oil spill and congressional efforts to redirect penalties from that spill back to Gulf Coast communities for restoration activities. And when we were working on that legislation, Sarah and I worked very closely on it, Derek as well, it was really important to our offices that our policies be based on best available science. And that's something that underpins a lot of our environmental protection statutes. 
And I realized that a lot of my colleagues that I was working with on the Hill didn't have a science background. Uh, however, we did have a unique opportunity where two of the congressional staffers were former, former NOAA Sea Grant fellows. And so they did have a science background, which wasn't necessarily very common amongst our other colleagues. And so that was a really interesting experience that I was then able to explore further when I transitioned into the environmental and nonprofit community where those organizations actually had scientists on staff. And at the Environmental Defense Fund, I would say certainly on my first tour of duty, I wasn't spread as thin as I was in my first Hill job. And I was really able to delve into more aspects of that work than just policy. So Sarah mentioned grassroots and coalition building, but I would say from my standpoint, also the science that drives our policy decisions and also communications strategies. And those experiences, I think, certainly prepared me for my positions on committees, both the Energy Committee and the Environment Committee, where it's really important to be a subject matter expert and understand different perspectives. So actually, Elizabeth, I'd love to hear a bit more of your perspective between being a personal staffer, so working for Senator Landrieu versus a committee staffer when, again, you worked on the Energy Committee for Senator Landrieu, but up for the committee and now working on Environment and Public Works. How do you um, sort of what are the what are the differences in terms of that personal staffer versus a committee staffer? And um, I guess maybe bluntly, do you like one better than the other? What you know, what's or, or do they just both have their appeal? What's your thought on that? Well, I loved my experience working in Senator Landrieu's personal office. I think I was young and very idealistic at that time, and it worked well for me because I was representing my home state, and it was just a terrific experience. However, I was, as I mentioned, spread very thin and working on a lot of issues, didn't have a lot of breaks, didn't have a lot of downtime. And I think on a committee, you typically are responsible for less policy issues, and you're really expected to dive down, understand a lot more about issues, and as I said, really be a subject matter expert. And I think while I loved my personal office experience, I am at this point in my career really enjoying those opportunities to delve down deep, talk to experts, talk to academic experts, talk to scientists, and really just uh, understanding more aspects of policy. So I think following up on that um, and hearing all about your experience, I feel like there are a lot of people out there that hear about Capitol Hill and government and policymaking work and are really curious about what all of that actually entails. So will you shine a light on some of that by walking us through um, some of the day-to-day? Like, what are your current responsibilities and some of the initiatives that you are working on right now? Let's start with Elizabeth, and then we'll go to Sarah. Sounds good. So uh, things are very different now, obviously, because COVID-19 has caused our priorities to shift and also we are mostly working from home, but I think I'll start with what I do under normal circumstances, which is that 
Environment and Public Works Committee typically has committee proceedings at least once per week when the Senate is in session. So that's either a hearing and or a business meeting. And whenever our committee is having a hearing on an issue that I work on, I am responsible for finding a witness. I'm responsible for providing information and materials to our committee offices. And I'm responsible for briefing the senator on the topics and working with him on his statement and his questions. I also take a lot of meetings with various stakeholder groups who want to come in and talk about how our committee and how the Senate and the Congress are considering those issues that I work on. And so that is how we spend a lot of our time. Obviously, now that we're working from home, it's a lot of Zoom calls and um, phone calls, but there certainly are still some issues that are coming up. Um, So, for example, most recently, I've been able to advise Senator Carper on the Great American Outdoors Act, which the Senate has been considering this week. That legislation actually includes maintenance funding for the National Wildlife Refuge System, which falls in EPW's jurisdiction. And then I've also had the opportunity to work on an invasive species title in the water resources development legislation that our committee recently reported. And then I guess I'll also mention that we are looking at legislative ideas related to wildlife trade and the transmission of disease, which is still relevant given the current pandemic. Yeah. And Sarah, how about you? What are some of the initiatives that you're currently working on? Yeah, so this year is a big year for women, period. 100 years of white women's suffrage in the U.S. It's the year of the woman. It's also a big year for a lot of our environmental agencies. Um, In 1970, President Nixon issued two different executive orders that fundamentally changed federal environmental policy and law. And one of those was the reorganization plan number four of 1970, which created NOAA in its current form. When I say it created in its current form, they kind of picked pieces, parts from throughout the federal family and put them together and created NOAA as it is. So they grabbed the Weather Bureau, they grabbed the Bureau of Commercial Fisheries, merged them together, voila, you have NOAA. So one of the things that Ranking Member Cantwell is very interested in doing is... um, working with Chairman Wicker in formally authorizing NOAA legislatively via congressional action. And so we have uh, been working with our counterparts on the chairman's staff with NOAA itself and with outside stakeholders to gather feedback on what a NOAA Organic Act could and should look like. And our hope is to get that you know, across the finish line during this year, the 50th anniversary. Um, In addition, you may have seen the news this week, it's Capitol Hill Oceans Week, you may have seen the news that former NOAA Administrator Kathy Sullivan became the first woman to reach Challenger Deep, the deepest point of the Mariana Trench. And she's also a former astronaut, so she's like the most vertical uh, human (laughs) that there has been. So um, we are also working with Chairman Wicker on a reauthorization of the ocean exploration uh, statutes because, you know, John Kennedy said, famously said, we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the bottom of our our own planet. 
and the ocean holds great promise and great peril. So that's another initiative that we've been um, working on with our counterparts. We try to work really in a bipartisan manner, which means a lot of work on the staff side, um, but it results in what looks like very um, easy markups and committee proceedings because we work really hard on the back end to get to consensus. Elizabeth, maybe you could comment on that too, because I often think of environment and public works as, and sometimes at times it can be the most partisan committee when there's issues of, you know, climate change or um, some environmental policy. And yet the, the thing that I work with you guys most on the water resources development is usually very partisan. So could you talk a bit about how you, you guys work together with a do or do not work well with your Republican counterparts? Sure. I think Environment and Public Works also has a long history of bipartisanship. And even when Senator Boxer, who was widely considered to be one of the more liberal members of the Senate, and Senator Inhofe, who was widely perceived as one of the more conservative members of the Senate, uh, those two members were able to work closely together. And I would say that Senators Carper and Barrasso have continued that tradition. You mentioned that we have had two word of bills that have been reported from our committee along bipartisan lines, one that became law and another that uh, we hope will become law before the end of this Congress. We also reported a transportation bill last year that was reported along bipartisan lines and a legislation, a piece of legislation that I worked on that was also reported by voice vote with no opposition uh, it's called the ACE Act, America's Conservation Enhancement Act, which includes both habitat restoration provisions and reauthorizes important uh, wildlife and conservation laws. Yeah, it's helpful to remember that what you see in the paper is often the controversial stuff because that's what gets attention. But there is a lot of legislating that's happening um, for more, I don't know, common sense solutions that brings together. I agree. And I think conservation and coastal restoration are issues that really involve a diverse body of stakeholders and continue to attract bipartisan interest, even in the midst of a lot of partisanship on other things. Can I jump in with one more question about initiatives? I, I don't think these are things you're working on now because of the timing of um, when we're talking to you. But I often think of committee work uh, being responsible for uh reviewing presidential nominees. And so you guys have oversight in approving secretaries and even undersecretaries. Can, do, does one of you want to, maybe Sarah, do you want to jump in on that and talk a bit about your role in confirming or, or reviewing NOAA staff? Yeah, it's actually very, very, very relevant right now because the day that we were sent out on indefinite telework because of COVID-19 was the day of the hearing where we the nominations hearing for Neil Jacobs, who has been nominated to serve as NOAA administrator. He's currently acting in that role. Um, he was confirmed as a deputy administrator, but he's currently acting in that role anyway. And I can tell you that external factors like coronavirus directly influence our ability to give good guidance on whether a nominee is uh, suitable for a role. So for example, that hearing, because everybody was aware of coronavirus while we were sitting in that hearing room, it was very tense and uncomfortable for everyone, for the senators, for the staffers, 
for the nominees. And I think it got a little bit compressed as a result of that. Um, that having been said, we know that nominee and we have seen his work and the senators can, can vote based on what they have seen of him. But you can imagine that in an environment where we're trying to give good guidance on the suitability of nominees, it's really important to have the opportunity to spend time with them in an un, in not a rushed way. And so, for example, next week, we're going to have a nominations hearing of um, Mike Walsh to serve as uh, as an assistant, so no, maybe as general counsel at the Department of Commerce. And so we were able to do a, a phone call with him to ask him questions on a staff level in advance of that hearing. But it just changes how we do our work. Um, and we're all learning. We're all adjusting to it over time. A lot more going on over email than before. So yeah, nominees are hugely important. Hugely important. And it's something that people don't think about when they think about Congress because it's only a Senate-side responsibility. Um, but it's something we take very seriously. Yeah, so if I could jump in and tag on to this conversation that's diving a little bit deeper into the policymaking process, I'm wondering... What does effective policy making look like to both of you and how do you measure success? So, um, you know, thinking about what do you want people to know about the work that you all do and the policy making process? And then on the flip side of that, um, what is success to you? So uh, let's start with Elizabeth. Yeah. So I'd say at, at the end of the day in Congress, if you're going to really boil it down, I'd say our primary goal is probably to enact laws and conduct oversight of those laws. But I think for me, my measure of success is when you can actually see the results of those laws on the ground. And that took some time because when you're a new staffer and you're pulled in a bunch of different directions, you maybe don't have as much opportunity to see the impacts of that work. And frankly, it often takes a long time for policy ideas to actually become law and then ultimately to be implemented. But one of the issues that I've worked on where I can see a crosswalk between my various roles um, is relative to the Endangered Species Act. So the pelican is Louisiana state bird, the brown pelican, and that bird was endangered for some time and was actually removed from the endangered species list, I believe in 2009. And Senator Landrieu, who I was working for at the time, worked with the administration on that announcement. And then after that happened, the BP oil spill hit and the pelican was one of kind of the symbols of the impacts of that spill. And Sarah and I then worked on legislation, to, as I mentioned earlier, to dedicate BP oil spill penalties back to the Gulf to help improve uh, habitat and clean up the spill, which you know we're still seeing long-term impacts from. And that funding actually has helped pelicans recover again and created habitat for them. And so really being able to see the impacts of our work come full circle and see how different things we work on overlap with one another is has been a really wonderful measure of success for me. But I think we still have a lot of work to do. And uh, hopefully Sarah and I will have more opportunities to work together on some of these impacts. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad the Peloton because that actually, Jenna, goes to one of the things you asked about the difference between the transitions between working in the Senate and then an advocacy organization and then back in the Senate. So we, when we were both at the advocacy organizations, we used the Pelican as a central image in one of our campaigns, which was to hold BP fully accountable through the Department of Justice process. And we actually had um, a blown up image that I can still see in my mind of a very oiled Pelican uh, put into the subway station closest to the Department of Justice so that the employees, as they went to work, could see in real time, like, what was the impact. So I'm really glad Elizabeth went for the pelican. An image is worth a thousand words. And we did that a lot in the advocacy side, but also our bosses like to um, show floor charts, to show uh, images of, of what's going on on the ground. Because sometimes when you're in the Capitol building, you can feel a little bit removed from the resource. And so it brings it home to have those those compelling images. But in terms of the what I think is effective policymaking or how, how do I know that I've had success, um, for me, it's less about legislative wins because we can write laws, and, and Elizabeth touched on this too, we can write laws all day and if they're not implemented um, in the way that they were intended or fully or successfully, then they won't necessarily translate to on-the-ground benefit. Um, I have found that the oversight function of Congress and the committees has been a very effective tool um, in moving the ball. And I'll use a, a an analogy that doesn't deal so much with the coast, but instead more with the atmosphere portion of my portfolio. So back in the 2000s, um, during the during the Bush administration, actually, there was a recognition that we did not have a backup for one of our Hurricane Hunter jets. Um, and at the time, the administration pushed really hard on Congress to try to get a backup, and it never happened. But that work wasn't lost. The institutional knowledge was still there. And so when the 2017, 16 and 17 hurricane seasons hit, our solo Hurricane Hunter jet got grounded for emergency maintenance because it's literally decades old and there was no backup. And so at that point, we were able to start resurrecting that work that had been done in the early 2000s and require that NOAA get a backup jet. And then you remember that those hurricane seasons were devastating to communities, uh, coastal communities. And so we were able to push for that scientific asset and I anticipate that in the next year, there will be a ribbon cutting on that second Hurricane Hunter jet, which will last us for decades to come and provide really important information in advance of coastal storms. I think those are both great examples and very inspiring. I, I, I certainly knew the um, the Pelican and Louisiana issue because I worked on it, but I love that hurricane jet story. It's just a nice, nice example of things that takes work, but you don't necessarily think about it. You just sort of assume that all the hurricane data you see is just always going to be there, but it, it takes people making sure that it gets funded and happens. Um, one follow-up question I had, uh, having spent my whole career really on the advocacy side, and I think Jen is the same, I don't uh, 
I don't get that many people telling me that I'm wrong or I'm making the wrong decision, right? I, I work with my members at ASBPA or, or previous organizations, and I advocate a position, but I don't have to balance that with with opposition. But certainly you guys on the Hill, you know, you have environmental or coastal groups coming in and asking you to do one thing, but then there's going to be pushback. How do you guys handle um, handle people telling you that you're wrong or you should do something that you don't you don't agree with? Yeah. Um- I hear I'm wrong a lot. And so maybe, maybe, maybe it gets easier with practice. Um, The point of the Senate is debate. That's not to mean disrespectful debate, but it's debate. And debate yields a better product at the end. Like sometimes I may have a gut sense on something and it could be right in a vacuum. But when I start to consider outside elements, I come to a more middle course and I find out at the end that it's right. And I actually do have a story about this too. When I first started working in Senator Nelson's office, there was a consent decree that my supervisor placed on my desk. And she said, you're a lawyer. What does this mean? And it had to do with water quality standards in the state of Florida. And I read through it and it was a very, very complicated issue. My gut reaction when I read it was the EPA's science is right on here. Of course, we need clean water. We need the cleanest water we can possibly get. Um, And it was a very strong feeling of that, right? And I delved into this issue for a year. And at the end of a year, sending memos to Senator Nelson about the issue and sort of charting a course of figuring out the science, he he summoned me down to have a meeting with him at lunch. And so we went down to the, to the cafeteria in the Senate and I ate maybe one piece of lettuce the entire time. And I explained the entire issue to him from soup to nuts. And he looked at me and he said, at the end of this, he says, Sarah, what's the side of angels? And what he meant was like, you know, what's the right thing to do? And I was so struck by the question that I almost didn't know how to answer it. Well, when I, when I came out with the answer, he said, yep. Um, and that stuck with me because at the end of the day, you might come to the same decision, but you'll have more context behind it. And, and that leads to better policymaking. I learn a lot every day uh, being told no or being told that I'm wrong on something. And so I think being receptive and trying to Put yourself in other people's shoes is a good thing. I agree. I think my favorite opportunities in my career have been those that allowed me to work with many different people and hear from many different sides and truly find the common ground. Uh, Senator Carper, who I work for now, he talks about the the four C's. Sometimes it's the three C's, but mostly it's the four C's which if I'm recalling correctly, are communication, compromise, collaboration, and civility. And I really love that. I think it drives the way that I try to do my job. And when you're told that you're wrong, or when you're told that someone disagrees with you, they can't possibly disagree with you on everything. So finding the areas where you can agree and moving conversations forward I think is really important. And in the Senate in particular, it's very rare to have 
60 members of one party. And so it's not just on legislative matters, typically a simple majority. You have to have 60 votes, which means that the Senate lends itself to those sort of bipartisan opportunities to really get things done. Yeah. So now I'm thinking about, you know, disagreeing and, um, Sarah, I think it was you that mentioned, you know, placing those really impactful visuals um, in the the subway station and really connecting with people at a human level. And I think that that's really important to understand when we're trying to make decisions on things that um, can be polarizing or really difficult to discuss. And so I want to focus a little more on that, like, human aspect side of things, because you know, many of us, we all hold a wide range of interests and have things that we're passionate about and may want to engage with both inside and out of work. But I'm wondering, you know, how do you stay engaged on issues that you care about in ways that are not um, a conflict of interest with the roles that you both hold? Uh, Let's start with Elizabeth. Well, I think, first of all, I spend a lot of time outside with my husband and my dogs. And I think that really keeps me connected to the work that we do to protect and conserve the environment. I know Sarah and I share that in common as well. Um, And in terms of our community, I have spent some time working on litter in our neighborhood. It's especially important where we are because we live next to several units of Rock Creek Park, but it's a suburban area, so it really requires a community effort to keep it clean for everyone to use it. Uh, and so one example is I, I p- was able to partner with Trash Free Potomac to deliver yard signs to neighbors in order to raise awareness of these issues. And we work with our neighbors to do regular cleanup of these park areas. And there's actually a nice tie to some of the work that we do in our committee to reduce plastic waste and address marine deb- debris Uh, which are also very bipartisan issues. Um, And that's important where we are because much of the litter in our DC neighborhoods can end up in the Anacostia and Potomac River. So I really don't find it difficult at all to find opportunities to stay connected to the work in a personal capacity. And I don't really see any conflicts with the work that that we do professionally. Yep, I think that's right. Elizabeth and I... um both like to travel and get outside. And we actually met up in Lisbon, Portugal last summer by happenstance because we like to be outside and and experience new things. Um, I now live in the watershed of the, well, we all do, right, in DC, live in the watershed of the Chesapeake Bay. But I, I literally live in an area between the Patuxent River and the South River and spend as much time as humanly possible outside Um, And I've found great connections to the work via local groups, um, moms groups, for example, that we have a a nonprofit organization out this area called Free Forest School. And it's a bunch of moms who take their little ones out to Patuxent Research Reserve um, to enjoy the resource and to learn about it and learn how to conserve it. And the reason that both Elizabeth and I went into this field was that we had those early influences as kids. And so it's important to me to give that opportunity to my son and to his uh, peers too, to get out and into the environment. 
the other issues that I stay passionate and engaged on are women in the field. And so I serve on the advisory board of the Women's Aquatic Network, which is a networking organization for professionals, women and men, um, that want to be in the field of aquatic policy. And it's like a kind of a weird term, aquatic, right? But it means both freshwater and marine. And so people, you know, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth's committee deals with more freshwater issues than my committee does. My committee deals primarily with saltwater issues, but we have people from science to policy um, and others that are part of our network. And we try to help them all figure out how to stay engaged in the field. Um, And the other kind of nonprofit service that I do is that I'm on the Maryland State Parks Advisory Commission. And so I help the Maryland Park Superintendent think through um, different challenges. The most recent one being, what do we do about coronavirus? Our parks are open. We need to keep our rangers safe. Um, Yeah, I don't find a conflict there. They seem pretty happy together. So I like that you mentioned, uh, you know, your your work with Women's Aquatic Network and getting involved in the communities that you live in. And um, that made me think about the audience that we have for this show and this network. And we have a number of early career professionals and lifelong learners that listen to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and I always try to take a a mentor moment to reflect on our careers and paths and share advice with listeners. What advice do uh, you both have for somebody that might be looking to transition from nonprofit work into government and policymaking? Um, I feel like I've been calling on Elizabeth a lot, so we'll start with Sarah first and we'll flip that. (laughs) Okay, so I have to make my pitch for Women's Aquatic Network, which is that there are existing um, networks in place that you've got to plug into. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you become a member of those networks, but maybe you follow them on on social media and you give them a like, or you tune into their podcast. Um, And if you hear a voice that sounds like a compelling um, story or someone that you'd like to connect with, I don't mind getting cold calls and I'm sure Elizabeth, I don't mean to speak for her, but probably has also fielded her share of cold calls. Um, So I think that's part of it. I also think it's a challenge. You know, you you'll see this in networking organizations. You see significant membership in early career and you see significant membership in late career where there's a massive gap, particularly for women is mid career. And the reason is that we start to have to wear so many hats that it becomes very difficult to maintain all of those hats. And so, for example, you can hear my toddler in the background watching Pocahontas while I'm trying to work on <laughs> podcast, right? And so it becomes difficult for mid-career folks. So to the extent that you can make it easy on the mid-career folks you're tapping into um, to help provide you guidance and feedback and help network you onto the hill, all the better. Have your cover letter ready to go. Be willing to jump on a call for 10 minutes rather than meet them in person for coffee. These are, I know these seem like really small, discreet little things, but, but they really are significant. And Elizabeth, how about you? What advice do you have? 
I do want to take a minute to go back to women and the Senate and what Sarah spoke about with respect to women taking opportunities to mentor other women. Since Sarah and I both started in the Senate, the number of female senators has increased exponentially. I think also for me, I had a really strong role model in Senator Landrew. And not only did we have a female senator, but we also had a female chief of staff. Our staff director on the Energy Committee when Senator Landrew was chairwoman was, I believe, the first female staff director on our side of the aisle of that committee, which had traditionally been dominated by men. And so there's there's just it's I think it's just an important time in history to highlight that. Um, and then I guess I also went on to work for a female staff director on Environment and Public Works, um, who was succeeded by another female staff director. And so it's a really exciting opportunity for for us to grow. And as Sarah mentioned, I am always excited at the opportunity to talk to anybody, not just women, anybody who is interested in pursuing a career in environment or in politics. And people reach out through LinkedIn, people reach out through official channels, and I'm always willing to sit down with folks. And so at the end of the day, my best advice to folks really is network, network, network. And Jenna, that actually brought me back to another point. You asked, what is success in the Senate? And I mentioned that legislative successes are successes, but they're not like the thing that gets me most excited. The other thing that I would absolutely label as a success are all of the junior staffers that I've worked with who have gone on to their next career position and continue to mentor other people. So we always have a NOAA Sea Grant fellow. I know Elizabeth talked about um, AAAS fellows. That's another another kind of fellowship on the Hill. But we on our committee always have a Sea Grant fellow. And I am over the moon when they go on to bigger and better things. It's like one of my proudest achievements is to see where my junior staffers wind up. And I, I love that you mentioned that because I I get so much joy out of that too. When you see people that you work with and interns and you know folks going on to start building their career and you just see these passionate young people really making a difference and building a, a community and working themselves into the community that you work with. It's, it's so great to see, um, you know, the people that you know and care about see success in their lives. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I, I just want to take a, a moment, sorry, Derek, just quickly to make sure that people know how to follow along with the work that you are all doing. Um, so how would you suggest people that are listening um, follow along or follow up with you if they're interested in reaching out or learning more about the work that you do? Um, Sarah, I will start with you. Yeah, so the Commerce Committee has a website and it stays relatively updated. But as I mentioned, the oceans issues sometimes don't fit so clearly in that box. And so um, also follow our Twitter handle, which is at Commerce Dems, to see what we're up to uh, from an official standpoint. And then on my spare time side, please do take a look at the Women's Aquatic Network website and Facebook page. Both of those will be updated with 
what we're doing. The board of the Women's Aquatic Network has decided that for the remainder of this calendar year, all events will be virtual, which is great because it means that anyone, anywhere, not just in the DC region, can tune in and participate. And so, you know, I know your listeners are from all over the country and this year brings on a unique opportunity for them to join us with the Women's Aquatic Network programming. Great. And Elizabeth, how about you? My answer is not much different. The Environment and Public Works Committee also has an official website and an at EPW Dems Twitter handle. And I think that um, using LinkedIn is helpful. And I've had folks who have found me on LinkedIn that I have sat down and shared coffee with. And I think those are networking opportunities for those folks who are reaching out, but also learning opportunities for us. And folks should certainly continue to take advantage of all of those networking channels. So I think we're about to wrap up. I know we have, I always have a final question uh, that I ask all my guests, um, which is what is your coastal place or beach that inspires you and jenna's going to have her her final question too but i just wanted to again thank you guys for joining i think i think the advice i wanted to call back the advice that you gave earlier sarah which is to say yes to uh suggestions from left field or things that come out i think the two of you are just such great examples of how careers can blossom from from saying yes, from taking some of those early opportunities. If I'm if I'm following your sort of resumes and background correctly, Elizabeth started by being a campaign staffer uh, for a candidate, and uh, Sarah, you started for, by being a fellow um, coming out of law school. So it wasn't like you you know you you started at these like glamorous positions right away, or um, you really worked your way up, bounced around. But I think are two of some of the most influential coastal staffers on Capitol Hill, which is really saying a lot. Um, so uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for doing all the work you do, as well as thank you for joining us on the on the call. Uh, Jenny, you want to give your your final question and we can we can wrap it up with uh, two two questions, your favorite coast or beach and uh, yours, Jenna? Yes. And, you know, I just want to echo what what Derek said. I think that something that I always try to get at with my show um, is to demonstrate the the varied and winding paths that we all take to end up where we are. And I think the two of you have just such incredible insight and experience to share with everybody. So I'm very appreciative of you both joining us today. And I will add to Derek's question, what are you hopeful for moving forward? So Elizabeth, maybe uh, you want to kick us off and we'll finish up with Sarah? Sure. I actually think your question, Derek, is one of the tougher questions on this podcast, <laughs> because I love going, I've never met <laughs> a coast I didn't love. Um, but I think in terms of inspiration, it would be twofold. I am inspired, I think most by actually Grand Isle in Louisiana, which is a very much a working coastline. And I think the way that Grand Isle is, has really informed my approach to dealing with some of the more complicated issues as it relates to coastal communities and the impacts of climate change and development. And so that really inspires me. But I think the second part of the answer is relaxation and the opportunity to recharge. And I would say Orange Beach and Gulf Shores, Alabama, as well as Destin, Florida, where I was really raised, 
going to enjoy the beach and the Gulf of Mexico and everything that it has to offer. I am hopeful for continued opportunities to work on bipartisan issues. I think it's really easy, especially right now, to get caught up in the partisanship and some of the really challenging times that our country is facing right now. And so the way that I remain hopeful is just really staying focused on where do we agree? Because I think if we focus on the negative, it becomes harder to put one foot in front of the other. And that's really what I try to get up every day and do both personally and professionally. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with that question first and pick up where Elizabeth um, left off, which is a very hopeful and positive place. And I think I'm there too. My mom used to tell me when I was a little girl, if you borrow something, you have to return it in better condition than you found it. And that's my hope. My hope is that I give to my son and to future generations a better, more just, cleaner planet than, I, than how I found it. Um, and I had a pretty darn magical childhood. So I hope the same for all of the up and coming inhabitants of our of our earth. I know that sounds really mega and weird, but I don't mean to get too woo with y'all, but that's how I how I face that question. And then the second one about beaches, I'm I'm in the same boat as Elizabeth in that I've never met a body of water that wasn't my favorite. That having been said, let me give you a couple of them. My childhood place would be Crescent Beach, Florida. <laughs> Never been there. You got to go. You got to see the history of St. Augustine. You got to see the beautiful um, white sand beaches you know, covered in coquina shells with the dolphins rolling in the waves. It's a magical place. And the little bunnies in the sand dunes. And then um, for my son, his magical childhood beach is Right here in Anne Arundel County, Quiet Waters Park, there's a there's a coastline that's been restored with oyster shells. And so he calls it Oyster Beach because he gets to go down there and see how pretty the oyster shells are. We've seen turtles there. I highly recommend a visit. It's not that far from downtown D.C. Come on out, folks. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, this has been so much fun. I really enjoyed talking to you, getting to hear a bit more of the the personal behind the scenes stuff often I, I talk to folks about wonky policy details but I think it's really important for all of us who work in policy to remember that behind each and every policy are lots of people and I really enjoy working with you guys so thank you well I would also like to thank you guys and thank Derek and we'd also like to thank the listeners if you like what you heard and want to explore more of the sea change podcast capital beach crossover shows and other shows like ours you can find them all at the american shoreline podcast network wherever you listen to podcasts you can also connect with us online on twitter we are at coastal news 365 and on facebook we are coastal news today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.